truth, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, as a Christ follower, I have to accept what Jesus says. You may struggle with what Jesus says, but I've made a decision to be a Christ follower, and so I'm subject to what He says. And if He says that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through Him, I'm not going to argue with Him, but I'm going to surrender to that. Okay? If, if that's not where you are, I'm, I'm not here to try to argue you into anything. I, my only hope is that the Holy Spirit would show you what God wants you to know. Uh, Jesus also said, if you hold to my teaching, this is uh, John chapter 8. I think I put John 10 in your notes, so if you want to change that, I'm sorry about that. But he said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So this is why we're teaching through the Scriptures. We're trusting that the Word of God with the Holy Spirit, that's enough. Okay? Not here to do a show or give you fancy stories or anything, just to trust the Lord to speak through His Word. Now, at this point in our study, Jesus is in the final months of His life. He's heading south to Jerusalem where He will soon fulfill His purpose. He came to be the sacrificial Lamb of God who would take the sins of the world upon Himself and then carry them to the grave so that we would no longer have to fear uh, judgment or the power of sin and death. But we could walk in the liberty that He's provided through His death through taking His sins upon Himself. Our sins, excuse me, our sins upon Himself. He doesn't have 12 disciples at this time. He has many disciples. Many learners are following Him. And the 12 disciples are now considered to be His apostles. And so this is where we are. Um, You know, uh, the the disciples, when it comes to Jesus going to Jerusalem to suffer and die, they, they, they are not understanding this as much as Jesus is talking about it. They do not understand it. Because they believe he's the Messiah, and as far as they know, the Messiah is going to come and defeat the Roman government and establish their kingdom. So they can't grasp that he's, he's come for a first and primary reason here, and that is to die for the sins of the world. Okay? Uh, the, the, the disciples uh, expect the kingdom to come. They expect Jesus to establish his kingdom Whereas the Pharisees, who we're going to see today, they're demanding that the kingdom will come. In fact, if Jesus is the Messiah, then they only want to see one thing. And until they see it, he's nothing more than a liar. And that is, will he usher in the kingdom? And that's the whole premise of what today's text is about. Will this guy who's making these crazy claims usher in the kingdom of God now? Okay, And if not, then he should be killed. All right? So this is the Word of God. Let's prepare our hearts as we get ready to look at the Scriptures today. Are you ready to receive from the Lord? Is He enough? What would keep you from receiving from the Lord? I know you have real concerns. Cast your cares on Him because He cares for you. He cares more deeply than you do about your circumstance. 
We pray for this young preacher in, in Iran right now who's facing death unless he denies Christ. It's amazing he's been alive this long. Give him courage and boldness and give the church courage and boldness right now. We pray, Lord. And we pray for the Christians in Egypt who are suffering horrible persecution right now. Give them boldness and strength to stand for Christ. And give us strength, we pray. Speak to us, Lord. We are listening. Amen. All right. Luke chapter 17, verse 20. <clears throat> Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied. Okay, so I have to stop right there because this is the issue right here, right now. These Pharisees who are really having trouble with Jesus, they're, they're emphatically demanding an answer. When will the kingdom of God come? Israel is under tremendous oppression by the Roman government. These religious leaders know the promises of God. They're looking forward to the day when uh, Israel will live in the promise of God and all the benefits. They're sick and tired of Roman tyranny and they want to know when the kingdom of God will come. And, and the same is true of us today. We are tired of all the madness we're seeing in the world. Life seems futile. Young people seem to be giving up on the left and right. What's the purpose of even going on? And we want to know, when will the kingdom of God come? And, and consequently, there's much speculation out there as to when this will happen. I mean, currently, one of the major ones is the Mayan calendar that's going to come to an end December 21st, 2012. Is this going to be the end of the world as we know it? Is this going to usher in the second coming of Christ? And so I brought this comic strip. Mayan husband walks in the door having just completed the Mayan calendar and says, I only had room to go through 2012. To which the wife says, that's going to freak somebody out someday. <laughs> God, I love it. Uh, but it, it causes some questions and wonder. But Jesus... Uh, in Matthew 24, gives us some things to look for as the kingdom approaches. Okay, this is chapter 24, verses 7 and 8. He said, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Okay, and this is literally the word birth pangs, which are indicators that there's a baby coming. And for every expecting mother who's out there, particularly when she gets to the later parts of her, of her term, there's only one question, and that question is, will this baby ever get here? Huh? Will this baby ever come? And then what happens is uh, these birth pangs continue, but not, they don't just continue, they continue with greater frequency, and greater intensity. They, and, uh, they in and of themselves are not the event that everyone is anticipating. They are merely indicators that there is a significant event coming. And the very same thing is true when it has to do with the coming of the kingdom of God. In fact, I love Webster. Uh, you can read Webster and actually be led to Christ. You know, find the gospel there. And the second definition under birth pangs in Webster is a disorder and distress incident that precedes 
Major social change. <laughs> Does that sound good to anybody? Are huh? you ready for some major social change at the coming of Jesus Christ? The earth is pregnant and it's anticipating the glorious day of change. We feel the birth pangs and we want to know, will this baby ever get here? Huh? Look at what the Bible says. Romans chapter 8. We know. <clears throat> well, I want you to read this with me, actually. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. When will the kingdom of God come? Wars, famines, earthquakes, disasters, these are the birth pangs. And as uh, that day of birth gets closer, we can expect to see these birth pangs coming with greater frequency and greater intensity. And in the midst of that, we can surely expect people to be asking the question, will this baby ever get here? Will the kingdom ever come? And people in the church spend hours trying to figure this out. Now, did you see Parade Magazine two weeks ago? Uh, there was an, an article there, and I'm amazed when I go to Tucson, because Tucson gets their issues faster than we do. I don't know how that works, that Parade comes a week early in the West than it does here, but it's... Interesting to me, but there was an article in there that said Extreme Weather, the 2011 edition. And at the top of the page were two words that really sum up the entire thrust of this message this morning. And those words were be prepared. And if you read under the be prepared, what it was was action steps for you to be ready in case... Uh, uh, you know, terrible weather or conditions came your way, all right? Now, we're not going to talk about how to be ready for terrible weather in our church service today, but we do want to talk about preparation for the coming of the Lord and how do we be ready, okay? And that's the thrust, not how to get ready for bad storms, but to be prepared for the, the coming of the Lord. Now, listen to some of this article because I think it, it's very valuable to where we are today, and this is the Pharisees asking Jesus, when will the kingdom of God ever come? Okay, so we're right on track, right where we need to be. This is the article. <clears throat> Get this. From February's Snowmageddon. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? I mean, this, this, they're playing on a biblical term, which is the Battle of Armageddon, which is the final conflict of humanity when mankind literally takes up arms against God. Okay, this is what we're talking about. Now, honestly, it, the event is anticlimactic. I mean, the climax of this whole thing is the assembly of the nations in the Middle East. But once the battle starts, it really isn't anything. You don't go to war and expect much of a war. Okay, you don't go to war against God and expect much of a war. So, Snowmageddon. From February's Snowmageddon to spring's deadly tornadoes, from Hurricane Irene to Texas' raging wildfires, 2011 has seemed like an extraordinarily bad year for weather. But has it really been that much worse than usual? Actually, yes. 
I would use three words to describe 2011, says Jack Hayes, director of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's National Weather Service. Deadly, destructive, relentless. He goes on. Extreme weather conditions are happening in places that don't usually experience them and are therefore, in those two words, less prepared. As Hayes points out, a hurricane on the eastern seaboard can be expected to cause flooding in coastal North Carolina and New Jersey, but not in northern Vermont. And then the question, so what gives? And then if you read the article, they go on to explain that uh, global warming has huge impact on what we're experiencing. Well, sure, global warming may be a condition we're facing today, but the better answer to what gives is simply we are experiencing birth pangs. The world is in a womb of darkness And it is ready to be delivered. It is in a womb of darkness and it wasn't created to stay there forever. But the day of birth is coming. The day of God's kingdom is coming. So be ready. Don't waste your time trying to figure out the date. But please, by all means, be honest and look at the birth pangs. Okay? Wow, I sounded like a preacher there for a moment. Verse 20, moving on. Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, as though you Pharisees who think you've got it all figured out, your observations alone will bring it in, okay? That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about outward manifestations or some big show that you're hoping to see. It's not going to come that way, guys, okay? Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Now, now the words within you have created uh, incredible controversy over, over the years. Yes, the Greek word is the word entos that can be translated within you, but it's probably better translated here among you because Jesus isn't suggesting to these hypocritical Pharisees that the kingdom of God is in them. Okay, but where both translations apply is right here. Where Jesus is, there is the kingdom. Did you get that? Where Jesus is, there is the kingdom. Thus, in this case, the kingdom is among you. But Jesus does want to take up residence in the heart of those who will put their trust in him. And so that message is for the Pharisees as well, that God's kingdom wants to come and desires to come into the heart and life of anyone who will put their trust in the living God and in what His Son, Jesus Christ, has accomplished for them on the cross. Because the kingdom of God is, within, is, is where Jesus is. If Jesus is in you, then the kingdom is in you. Okay, so moving from among you, and the kingdom is among you, to I want the kingdom to reign in my life. And then that's the reality of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is a spiritual reality and dynamic uh, that's available to each person who will put their trust in, in the living God. That's fundamental. Okay, To understand Scripture is to understand this. Romans 3 says the wages of sin... Uh, Romans 5... Wait. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. That's the Greek word thanetos, which means separation. 
Okay, so God is life and to be apart from God is death. Okay, because in him alone is life. And that's why the scripture goes on. This is uh, taken from from John one in Jesus was life and that life was the light of men. So the moment you put your faith in Christ, the light of God takes up residence in your heart and life, which gives us the capacity to live out the things that God desires. And that is that we love God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. So it's, it's not this thing, oh, God wants me to love him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength and love my neighbor as myself. So I'm going to de- determine to do that. Just watch me, Lord. I'm going to prove that I can do this. That's not what it's about. It's about surrender and trust in the Lord. And that's why when Peter preached the great message, he called out to all who will hear these words, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit There's God taking up residence, right? The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord will call. Now, some want to read this statement. Are you all with me? Because I get really excited. I don't want to lose you on the way. Okay, Everybody come along, right? We can only go as fast as our slowest follower. So catch up. Take a breath. Whenever I take people hiking, you know, I always have to stop and wait for the ones who are way down the hill. Here they come, right? Come on. We're all together on this hike. All right. So some want to look at this statement, the kingdom of God is within you, and they want to see it as cause for them to operate apart from God's power and grace. After all, what they'll say is just look for the good that is in you, and what they'll suggest is that God is some kind of divine spark that lives at the center of every man that just needs to be discovered and fanned into flame, or that somehow there's this goodness or godlikeness down deep inside of us that that is God in us so that we ourselves have become a sort of God. And what that does is gives glory to ourselves rather than him, because he says we're separated from God, but that he does want to take up residence in our heart hearts. OK, look at a couple of scriptures. This is Ephesians four, starting with verse 18. I'm going to personalize this because it says they, but I'm going to make it us. Look at this. We are darkened in our understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us due to the hardening of our hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, we have given ourselves over to sensuality. It's amazing how that comes up, and yet we in the church want to pretend like we don't struggle with flesh when we come to church. And then we go and do life by ourselves and wish somebody would discover us have given, us, given themselves over to, ourselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. How much of that is ever going to satisfy you? It never will because it's trying to fill a void that was meant to be filled by your Creator God. So we go after all this flesh stuff and it's like, you know, just having a diet of salt. You know, why... Why can't I get satisfied eating this stuff? Okay, look at this other one, Ephesians chapter 2. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, catch these words, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant, covenants of promise. Those two statements work together. Look at this. Without hope and without God in the world. Don't dig up some spark in you. Okay, 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to bring us into a restored relationship with the living God, which in turn brings the full potential of God's kingdom into our lives so that we can find ourselves living out dynamics that we never imagined possible for ourselves in a life of surrender. Okay, we give up the determination, but now we live in a life of, of surrender. It's at this point that it's no longer said the kingdom of God is among you because now the kingdom of God has taken up residence in you. So the kingdom of God is in you by the person of the Holy Spirit because where Jesus is, there is the kingdom of God. And so the application right here is, are you still trying to dig up some good thing from down deep inside yourself or trying to fan some little flame inside of you in order that you can somehow impress God and man? Look, look, God, I'm not as bad as they are. And by saying that, you just wiped out a whole bunch of people. I'm not as bad as they are. I'm fanning the flame. Look, and the call is, put your trust in the living God he wants to take up residence in your life and surprise you in ways that will blow your mind so that he's glorified and not you. Wow. Is Mia the only one out there? That's good, Michael. Keep preaching. Keep preaching the truth. Now, I have to say one more thing before we move on about the kingdom of God is within you. Jesus said that we should pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He taught us to pray that because it's a prayer of desire to see God rule. Okay, Not some nation, not the United States government, not the, uh, what's the uh, world one? United Nations, not some king, not some president, not some boss, but to have the living God reigning. And so when you think about that, in a very real sense, the kingdom of God is now, but the kingdom of God is not yet. The sense that the kingdom of God is now is we know God has won. And in many of our cases, God has won with us so that we're surrendered to him. And, and so, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Start with me. We can't do anything else about the rest of the world, but we can know and pray for the world. And we can pray and anticipate the day when Jesus comes and reigns supreme because that is our desire. So the kingdom is now, but not yet. And I think a good illustration of this is D-Day. Okay, in D-Day, uh, most significant, one of the most significant events of World War II June 6, 1944, 1944, right? 160,000 Allied troops invade Normandy, France. Its success really meant the end of the Nazi reign as it was being experienced at this time. But my understanding is that the next year and a half after D-Day, there were more lives lost in the war than previous. What happened? I mean, the major battle was won. Nazism... Their, their back was broken, but yet we're losing more lives than before. Well, we're now in the process of claiming the victory. We're not in Berlin yet. And so here we are. We know in the church Jesus has won. We know that Jesus will one day reign supreme. But now we are in the process as we anticipate the day when God is fully in charge 
of everything that is His. But right now, it's a matter of personal surrender to Him. Jesus has won. We are not home yet. So in that sense, the kingdom is now, but not yet. Don't give up hope. All right? Let's go on. Verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, so notice the shift here, okay? He was talking to the Pharisees who asked the question. Now he's talking to his disciples, learners. The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Did you notice that's plural, one of the days of the Son of Man? Okay, there were epiphanies in the Old Testament where Jesus appeared. Jesus appeared in a manger as a, as a tiny baby who grew to a man that became the sacrificial lamb of God that would uh, take away the sins of the world. Jesus is coming again. There have been many days of the sons of man. Okay? Those are just three general categories. Then it goes on. But you will not see it. You will not see one of those days of the Son of Man. Men will tell you, there He is or here He is. Do not go running after them. For the Son of Man in His day. Now notice that's singular. And what it's saying is that the Son of Man will have His day. Okay? Go ahead. Drive the nails in my hands. Laugh at me. Okay? The old song used to say. Right? But I'll rise. I will reign victorious. And it goes, His day. The day of the, that day. The Lord's day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So notice Jesus ends there by talking about His impending suffering and death. He's trying to help them distinguish the two. They only see one thing, okay? Come on, Jesus, conquer the Romans now. Take charge. He wants to know this. the day will come, but first the Son must suffer many things. You know, uh, yeah, that's just the way it is. You've got to see that. Open your eyes and see what the Word of God is saying. That this must happen first. But in that major part of that context, Jesus is warning us, don't get so caught up with studying and investigating and try to figure out what, when He's coming that, that that's all you commit your life to. Okay, He doesn't want us getting caught up there. If somebody tells you that He's already come or where He is or who He is or why He is or that He's come secretly, you know, like uh, both Muhammad and Joseph Smith want to tell you that He came in some way and changed His course, don't buy it. Because when He comes, it's going to come like lightning that will flash the globe and it's going to happen simultaneously so that there will be no doubt that He's come. Okay, so don't follow these guys who have some new answer. When the kingdom comes, everybody will, will know it. Okay, now Jesus is going to give a couple of examples of this. So we have to get this whole context today because it all paints this, this important picture. This is, uh, these are the examples, verse 26. These are very valuable examples. Just as it was in the days of Noah so also will it be in the days of the sons of men. It's amazing to me how right now uh, Bible scholars are saying that the story of Noah is, is just storybook stuff, that it's not real. And yet it was written as history, and Jesus refers back to it as an example that God's prophecies are cyclical, and just as they happened before, they will happen again. All right? So see that. Noah is very real. Okay? And they were laughing at him in his day, and they're still laughing at him today, and they're doing it in the name of intellectual Christianity. Watch out for that stuff. 
That is antichrist and, and it is unchristian. It is dangerous teaching. All right? So just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the sons of man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. So Noah got in a boat. God's judgment came. Picture of the rapture. See it? It wasn't until he got into the boat that the flood came. Going on. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying, selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom. Picture of the rapture. Not until after Lot left. Fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. When will the kingdom of God come? Notice people are still doing business as usual. Not a clue at what's going on, even though there's people like us out there saying, be ready, the kingdom's coming. They can't see it. And unfortunately, in the days of Noah, only eight people got into the boat. The rest were laughing at him. You know, I wish I could go and change that. And I can't because this is the way it played out. God is extending grace and favor saying, get in the boat. And people are laughing at it, even now, mocking Christians, you know. And so the best I can do is to, 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 to let everybody possible know God is coming. Be ready to meet your maker. You know, it reminds me of the little boy who's on the seashore, surrounded by thousands of starfish that got washed in. And he's desperately trying to throw the starfish back into the sea, you know, hopefully catching the current so they'll be dragged out back out to sea. And his father, you know, caring about his son, says, son, you can't help all those starfish. And that little boy picked one more up and looked at it and looked at his dad and he said, yeah, but I can help this one. And he throws the starfish back in the sea. We have got to take this seriously and see what's going on here. This business of rapture right here, Noah entered the ark, the flood came. Uh, Lot left Sodom and it rained down sulfur from heaven. Noah and Lot are classic examples of how God takes care of his church amidst the judgment. Okay, So I want you to see this major text from Scripture that shows exactly what we just saw here. Look at this. This is... uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world when He brought the flood on its ungodly people, then notice these three words, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And then these three words, he rescued Lot. And if you rescued Lot, a righteous man, he, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, verse 9, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desires of sinful nature and despise authority. Wow. I better sit down a minute. <clears throat> oh. This is heavy stuff. And so it's not something that I can go and, and pat myself on the back over and say, wow, look at you, you really let him have it today. This, that is not who I am and it's not my desire. 
And then you read this and you say, godly men, righteous men, can anybody really be saved? And then you think eight people got on the boat and you think about the futility of even wanting to do the will of God. This is tough, folks. And it's very important that we pause here and consider that because our job is not to go out of here armed with some kind of sledgehammer to whack the world over the head and say, I'm tired of you and I can't wait till God comes and wipes the, wipes the whole mess of you out. <clears throat> we can't do that. And, and I read about Noah and I read about Lot and I say, righteous men? Are you kidding me? They were a mess, the stuff I read. When we studied Genesis, I even pointed it out. These guys are ridiculous. In fact, they make me feel pretty good about myself. But you know what their righteousness was? Their righteousness boils down to only one thing. Do you know what it was? They believed God. And got out of Sodom and got into the boat. That's the distinguishing factor. It wasn't because you could go measure how holy they were and say, look how good they were. Let's make these guys saints. It was because they believed God. And this is what God is calling us to today. Listen to it from Romans 10. The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith. We are proclaiming that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And that may sound silly to you, but let me just say, it doesn't sound any sillier than a man taking 100 years to build a great big ship in the middle of the desert that might get six inches of rain a year. But once they got in the boat, all the silly games stopped and all the arguments stopped and eight people came out well. I'm just being honest as a pastor. I'm not a salesman. Okay? This is the Word of God. Verse 30. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside, should go down to get them. The idea here is just leave the stuff. Just leave it. When Jesus appears, leave it. (laughs) Don't go get it. You don't need it. All right? Don't hold your stuff that closely. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. And then this morning, remember Lot's wife. Lot's wife is a picture of a person who's trying to keep one foot on planet Earth and another foot in heaven. All right? What do you really want? You know, I always talk about the monkey traps in Africa where you take a bottle and you bury it in the ground and you drop a nut in the bottle. The monkey comes along, can reach his hand down in there and grab the nut, but then he can't pull his fist out. And so the monkey catcher comes, chops his arm off, and he's caught his monkey. All the monkey has to do is let go of the nut. Let go of the stupid nut. Grab a hold of the kingdom of God. And so the application here, this is the one application this church is about. Only use any application I give you as long as it helps you fulfill this one application. And that application is what? 
Absolutely, that's, that's where we're at. Verse 33. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night two people will be in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Now, if you're like me, you've been told by the church that this is a picture of the rapture here, that, you know, the rapture is going to happen. You're going to be left in bed alone. The shavers going to be running in the sink. But you have to look at this in context, honestly, because uh, when Noah got in the boat, the others were taken by judgment. When Lot left Sodom, the others were taken by rain. So frankly, this is a picture more of judgment. It doesn't undermine the fact that the rapture is going to happen, but it's more a picture of taken by judgment than taken by rapture right here. I think that's important to point out. Now, uh, I also want you to notice that the fact that there are two people in bed is not an accident, and that the fact that there are two people who are grinding grain is not an accident. People sleep at night. People grind grain in the daytime. What that is showing us is that when Jesus appears, he will appear around the globe simultaneously so that some people will be sleeping and other people will be awake. Verse 37. And then they ask this question, and I don't know where this question comes from. It's not the one I would have asked, you know. But, hey, I didn't make the team, the 12, anyway, or however many back then. Where, Lord? He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. So it's a common phrase of the day. Vultures know where the dead bodies are. But here lies another major problem, and that is if you have the King James Bible, it says wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered also. So consequently, there's this argument that what the eagles are a picture of uh, is a picture of the angels in heaven coming to carry the church away, and therefore this is a picture of the rapture as opposed to... The translation that I'm reading from that suggests that these are these are these vultures are scavenging birds that are demons that have come to carry people away to judgment. Okay, now the context would suggest that these are uh, scavenging birds that have come to carry people away to judgment, but the language isn't clear, so I'm not going to tell you what it is. You're just going to have to wait and see. Yeah. Be ready. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved, you and your household. And you say, man, that is so hard. What about my friends and family who don't believe? Man, do you trust God? Do you trust God at all? Can you trust your family into their hands? Huh? And can you pray for them earnestly? I mean, if I mean, why argue with God? And why not recognize what He says and trust Him? And instead of going out like you have some big hammer in your hand trying to be the judge yourself, recognize the day we're in. We are in the day of grace. And so it causes us to stop right here and to consider a couple of things. And, and the Holy Spirit may be speaking to you beyond this. The first question is, are you ready? Do you feel ready right now? For his, I'm not going to try to manipulate you with this. But are you ready? Call in the name of the Lord and be saved. Secondly, are you ready? But you could care less about anybody else being raised. 
And that, that, that sounds extreme, but what it boils down to, and I'm asking myself, what am I doing to rescue one? And this is just the time to give ourselves to the Lord again. I'm yours, Lord. I can't do this on my own. And Lord, there's a lot of stuff here I don't like. But I trust you. And in that trust, I give myself to you. Lord, there are people who don't know you. And I'm not sure that I'm doing much about it. Forgive me, Lord. I need to change. Change me, Lord. Give me your heart. Take a moment between you and God and just let Him do what He wants to in your spirit.